somebody might have to. There we go. Darn technology anyway. Okay. I have a question. I want to kind of gauge the room a little bit. Has anybody here ever had a pen pal at any point? Any point? One, two people? Okay. Internet. Internet close enough. Uh, let's broaden that out. Has anybody ever known someone but not met them face to face? Maybe it's over a phone conversation where you've met someone and you've talked to them on the phone a couple of times or you've written emails or letters, but you've never actually met them face to face. Does anybody have in that boat? You can think of a couple people at least, maybe. Okay. Even if you haven't, I want you to imagine that scenario where you know someone, but you've never met them in person. How difficult is it to really get to know someone that you've never met face-to-face? -face? Pretty hard. It's pretty difficult, even though you can have conversations with them, you can write letters, you can talk on the phone. It, it's a lot easier to get to know somebody once you've met them, once you've sat down and had a cup of coffee with them, and you can look at them in the face. We even have a saying for that. Anybody ever heard the phrase, it's nice to finally put a face to a name? Have you ever heard somebody say that? That's kind of what we're going to be running into in our passage that we're reading today here in the book of Exodus. I'm going to be looking at Exodus starting in chapter 20, 32. Exodus 32. I want to kind of remind everybody where we're at at this point. God has called his people out of slavery. He's displayed this glory to them. He's led them out of the desert. He's given them this whole list of commandments about how to live and how to worship. And right now at this point in God's story with humanity, God's number one goal is to get the Israelites to understand that he is God. We've seen this phrase over and over in the book of Exodus. I'm doing this so that you will know that I am God. But despite everything they'd seen, everything they'd heard, all of the wonders, all of the miracles, they'd heard his commandments, they were still struggling with the fact that they didn't have something tangible to represent God. The, the Israelites were wrestling with this. You've got to remember, they'd spent 430 years in Egypt worshiping idols, where the way you worship an idol is you have a physical statue and that thing is God and you, you can carry your little God with you and you can see it and touch it and, and it, it's real. And now they're brought out into the desert and they're given this God who doesn't have a face, he doesn't have a statue, he doesn't have anything to look at. And remember, a couple weeks ago when we talked about the tabernacle, about the presence of God being with the Israelites the physical, literal presence of God, all of that stuff we talked about two weeks ago hasn't actually happened yet. Those were just instructions on what was going to happen given to Moses. They knew about it. The Israelites knew what was going to happen. If you go all the way back to chapter 19, oh, somebody's going to have to, can I get a clicker? I mean, get a clicker. Yeah. Yeah, let's get a clicker. Boom. Okay. All the way back in chapter 19, 
when God is giving Moses these instructions, he says, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then the Lord, the Moses told the Lord what the people had said. So despite the fact God, they were able to hear all of this stuff that was going on is what I'm getting at. They might not have been able to see God, but they could see the presence of him and they could hear his voice. But despite all that, they could hear God's voice, they could see his glory, they could hear his commandments. They were still used to the old Egyptian ways. There's a very distinct difference between having something that reminds you of God, a physical, tangible thing that reminds you of God, and having an idol that in your mind you believe is God. Those are two completely different things. We have emblems here that remind us of God. But what we're talking about that the Israelites did in Egypt was they had these little statues and they believed that those statues were actually gods. And that's what they were used to. That's what they wanted. That's what they wanted to do with Yahweh in the desert. So that's what I want to pick us up here in verse 30, chapter 32, verse 1. After God has given Moses all of his commandments about the tabernacle. It says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So immediately what they do is they want to go back to their old way of life. Moses is up on the mountain and immediately they want to make an idol. And so they go through and they take all their jewelry and they melt it down and they, they craft this golden calf and they bow down and worship it. After God had specifically told them, don't do that. And in chapter 32, verse 9, I want you to skip down to verse 9. This is what... God says to Moses once God realizes or once God sees what the Israelites are doing. In, in verse 9, it says, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now, leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. God's doing something very interesting here. He's giving Moses a warning. God doesn't just go straight out and destroy the people who are practicing idolatry. He kind of gives Moses this warning. Here's what's going to happen if you don't fix this. We've got kids. You ever have those times when, when your kids are doing something and you say, if you don't stop, here's what's going to happen. That's kind of what God is doing here. And, and the reason we have to understand that is because what happens next is Moses reasons with God. And we shouldn't understand this as Moses having some sort of one-up on God. Moses being able to convince God. That's not what's going on here at all. God is making his intentions clear to Moses that these are the consequences of his actions. And God's basically saying, 
leave me to my own devices and here's what's going to happen. And Moses says, no, 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 I'll take care of it. I'll go down. I'll warn the people. Please don't do that. And, and that's what God wanted. God wanted Moses to go and, and deal with this problem because God basically was saying, if you don't, I'm going to have to and you're not going to like the results. God has declared his judgment. And this is a, it's a difficult thing to think about. I talk to non-Christians all the time, and the consensus that I get from people is, is everybody wants the merciful, forgiving side of God without the side of God that has justice and punishment. And I, I struggle with it too sometimes. It, it's, it's hard to wrestle with that, that God is merciful and forgiving, but also he has justice. And one of the things that I want you guys to understand when we think about the nature of God is that God doesn't delight in punishing his children. God doesn't enjoy punishing us. God doesn't enjoy dealing out justice. It's something, in fact, he's extremely hesitant to do, but he does because he knows he has to. Would you turn your attention to Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. God says, Say to them, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O people of Israel? As much as we wish that God could just be forgiving and merciful and never punish sin, I think each and every one of us knows that at some level, that if God never punished sin, then he wouldn't be a good God. And only God has the proper judgment to be able to strike that balance between mercy and justice. I mentioned parenting and how we discipline our children. You can see that pendulum swing when you look at how people parent their kids. On one extreme, you might have parents who, they rule by the belt. You didn't get your homework done, you're getting the belt. You got your elbows on the table, you're getting the belt. You missed your curfew, you're getting the belt. You've, you've seen this. You've got parents who are very overbearing. And my job, I'm not, I'm not trying to tell anybody about parenting. Everyone here's parents' kids have already grown up, so it's neither here nor there. But I think you understand that when you discipline to the extreme, two things happen. One, the discipline starts to lose its effect. If the punishment is harsh for every single thing, well, then it's no longer really effective. And two, children start to resent their parents. They lose that loving relationship that's so important. But here, that's one extreme. What about this other side? You've got parents who never correct their children, who never enact discipline, and their kids never grow to learn and never become productive members of society. There is a balance there, and God is the only one who's really truly wise enough to have that perfect balance when it comes to dealing with us. And so what God does, the people are in idolatry, God says something needs to happen, and he gives Moses the opportunity to correct their sins. And what we read in, in chapter 32 is Moses goes down and he does, he, 
he corrects their sins. He deals with them very harshly because that's what they needed. He burned the idols. He forced them to drink the water that was tainted with the gold from this calf. And finally, in verse 26, Moses does this. He stands out at the entrance of the camp and says, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Think about what he's doing there. Moses is giving every single person one final chance to rectify their actions. And it's not difficult. He simply says, if you're for the Lord, come stand over here. Everybody who is for God, here. Because at the end of the day, that's what God wants. He knows we don't do a good job with obedience. He knows that we fall on our faces trying to get things right over and over again. And at the end of the day, God just wants us to be for Him. If you're for the Lord, come to me. And all the ones who decided not to be for the Lord, they were punished severely, violently. God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Remember that. And then we reach, we reach sort of a turning point in the story here. Moses goes back up the mountain. God restates the covenant. He restates his commandment, and then he sends Moses back down. And this time it's different. The way the Israelites act, the way they respond is different. I'm going to look in, in chapter 35, verse 5. Moses goes down and says, From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, and bronze. So, and the Israelites followed these instructions to the T. Something's different here. Not only do they follow his instructions when Moses asked them to take an offering for the Lord, but they go so far above and beyond in their obedience that the workers on the tabernacle actually have to tell Moses, you need to stop these people. They're being too obedient. They're bringing too much stuff. We can't handle that. In verse, in verse 5, chapter 36, verse 5, it says, They said to Moses, The people are bringing more than enough for the work the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave the order, and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing more because they had already had was more than enough to do the work. Just think about that for a second. They were so obedient that Moses had to say, stop, that's enough, no more. Could you imagine what that would be like in the church today? Could you imagine if, if the elders and I, we all got together and they were like, hey, you need to preach a sermon about telling people to stop tithing because we've got so much that we just don't know what to do with it. So we need to let people know, stop, stop, please stop giving money. Could you imagine what that would be like? Could you imagine if, 
I had to stand up here and say, look, we have way too many people who are volunteering to do VBS stuff in the summer and children's church, and we've got way too many people coming in to prepare communion and to shovel the sidewalk. So you guys just stop. Please stop. It's too much. We can't handle that much. There's too many people vacuuming the church. There's too many people helping to put Bible studies together. There's too many people coming on Tuesday nights. We need less. Wouldn't that be an amazing problem to have? That's what they had here. So what changed? In one story, they're completely disobedient. They build an idol, they worship this golden calf, and in the next story, they're so obedient that it's too much. They can't handle it. What changed in the middle? Well, I want us to back up a little bit, and I want to go over this conversation that God and Moses had on the mountain. We're going to look at two different passages. The first one's going to be in chapter 33, verse 12. And then the second's going to be in chapter 34. 33, 12 takes place right after Moses deals out God's punishment. He goes through and, and destroys the calf and makes them drink the tainted water and runs them through the sword. And then in chapter 33, verse 12, it says, Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. And you have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you're so pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. And the Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And the funny thing about that word presence in the Hebrew, it's, it's kind of a play on words, because the word literally means face. It's, it's the same way we would say somebody is saving face because they're trying to save their reputation. Or we might say, it's good to see a friendly face. But we don't literally mean their face. What we mean is their, their whole being. And, and so God is basically saying, my face will go with you. And it's this, it's this play on words because the Israelites were craving a God who had a physical face like an idol. That's why they built the calf, because that's what they were used to. And so God's saying, you want a face? I'll give you a face, but it's not going to be what you think. In 33 verse 18, Moses said, now, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence, in your face. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. So again, there's this play on words between presence and face. And what God's saying here has nothing to do with a literal physical face and has everything to do with the fullness of his goodness. The fullness of his glory. 
He's saying you can't experience the fullness of God because even though you've found favor in my sight, you're not ready to receive that much goodness. The Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Again, God's using this language that's familiar to really drive home the point of his fullness. And then he says, Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. This little language trick that God's using, he's basically saying, I'm going to reveal to you a tiny fraction of my glory, a tiny fraction of my goodness, because that's all you can handle right now. Our second passage is in in chapter 34. I want to pick up in verse 29. It says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hand, He was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. So unbeknownst to Moses, during this entire conversation, God did something incredible. God allowed that tiny little fraction of his face or his presence to be revealed through Moses to the Israelite people as evidence that God was working through him. And even that tiny fraction of the glory of God was great enough that it allowed Moses' face to shine out to the point where they couldn't even look at him. They had to, he had to cover his face with a veil. And this served two purposes. Number one, it was concrete proof to the Israelites that God really was there on the mountain. There's no Wizard of Oz moment, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain thing. This was tangible proof of the working of God through Moses. This was something that the Israelites could see and experience and know was real. And the second thing that it did was it inspired obedience. The presence of the power of God, the presence of the Spirit of God inspired them to the point where they brought so many things for the tabernacle that it was too much. It inspired them to build the tabernacle and the furnishings to the exact specifications that God required. And that's 3429. And then we're not going to read every little bit, but if you took chapters 35, 36, 37, 38, and most of 39... And if you set them side by side with what we read two weeks ago, they're identical. What we read two weeks ago was God's instructions. Build the tabernacle this way. Make the garments this way. Make the Ark of the Covenant this way. And chapters 35 through 39 is, then they built the tabernacle this way. They made the garments this way. They made the Ark this way. And if you line them up side by side, what you'll see is they're exactly word-for-word perfect with how God described it. So we get all the way through that into chapter 39, verse 42, and it says, The Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
Moses inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord commanded, so Moses blessed them. And the turning point, the thing that allowed them to be so obedient was the presence of God shining through Moses. Know what we call that in the church today? That presence of God that inspires us and convicts us and gives us proof for God's existence? The Holy Spirit, it's the working of the Holy Spirit through us. And if a tiny fraction of God's glory working through Moses was able to inspire all of that, how much more so does the fullness of God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we receive upon baptism do the same for us? Moses had this much. We receive the fullness of God. Paul talks about this. It's a common phrase in this series I'm finding out. Almost all of this stuff, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is chapter 3, verse 6 through 18. In, chapter, in verse 6, Paul says, He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He's talking about the law. The law kills, but the Spirit gives life. He says in verse 7, Now, if the ministry that brought death which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, temporary though it was, ineffective though it was, that's what that word means, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? He says, if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory, if what was temporary, came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope we are very bold. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to present the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But... Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit." 
Paul's saying here to the church in Corinth that that fraction of power that was revealed in Moses isn't even comparable to what we receive when we are immersed into Christ. It's not even worth comparing. When we put on the clothes of Christ, when we receive the fullness of God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't even hold a candle. And yet, what do we do sometimes as Christians? We try to hide it. We don't want anybody else to know that we're a Christian because we might get out ostracized. We don't want to act a certain way or, or let people know that we're believers because they might make fun of us. They might tease us. They might think differently of us. We want to fit in with other people. Don't, don't do that. Don't hide the glory of the Spirit to fit in with the world. We should be the type of people that when we walk into a room, instantly people know there's something different about that guy. There's something about her. I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's something going on. They have this glow about them. Because the people we interact with in the world... They have the same problem the Israelites did in the desert. The Israelites refused to believe because they didn't have tangible proof of the power of God. They didn't have a statue that they could hold in their hands. They didn't have something that they could see and look at and touch. So they made an idol. They needed to create a God that had a face that they could look at so that they could see proof of the presence of God. And what God did was he revealed to them that his glory wasn't going to be revealed in some statue. His glory was going to be revealed through the presence of Moses, through the presence of this person, so that he would be so different, so radiant, that they would have to believe. And people today are the same. They need to experience God in a physical tangible way and when they don't get what they need they set up their own idols politicians money celebrities power these are all idols these are all things that people set up because they've been sitting at the base of the mountain for so long that they're starting to wonder if god's even there so they set up their own golden calves because they they need to have something to worship they need to have something that gives them proof that God is real. And your job as a Christian, my job as a Christian, is to take that glory, that fullness of God that's dwelling within us, the power of the Holy Spirit, and to let it shine so bright that people have no choice but to believe that there's got to be a God behind it. Our job is to let people see the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives through our love, through our joy, our peace, our patience, our kindness, through our goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Those are the things that God has given us so that other people might know that He is God. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much 
for the glory that you reveal through us. Today, I just ask that you would be with every single person in this room, that you would shine through them. God, we ask that you would help us to be like stained glass windows. Not that we create the beauty, but the light shining through us creates beauty that all the world can see. That you would help us to be that for the world, to be that in a world of darkness. We ask that you would help us to be people's light. We ask that you would help us to let people know that you're there, that you love them, that you created them, that you care about them. We want to thank you so much for this time that you've given us to study your word, that you would help us to apply it to our lives and to go out and make disciples of all nations. We pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. And the church said, amen.